This episode of Mountain Talk Monday deals with the topic of drug addiction. The topic is covered in detail through the story of two addicts in recovery. No foul language is used, but adult topics are discussed. Listener discretion advised. Welcome to Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. In this edition, I welcome John and Sheena to WMMT Studios. John and Sheena are married and reside in Letcher County, Kentucky. Both are drug addicts in recovery. Their addiction was a shared experience throughout their dating and marriage. Their story delves into the various topics associated with addiction. It is an important story to hear, and John and Sheena are both very open about their experience. This is a true story. However, some topics might not be suitable for the youngest of our children. Use your discretion. I am tremendously grateful to John and Sheena for sharing their story so freely with us. I'm John. I'm a father and a recovering addict. And it wasn't until I had uh, lost my children that I decided that recovery was something I needed to look into really hard. I'm Sheena. I've been clean almost five years. Mother of four kids. Let's just start with the question that everyone asks all the time is, how do you choose or do you choose to become an addict? You know, for me... It was like it wasn't a conscious choice. It was a, what's the big deal about this? Because I seen alcohol and drugs be put before me my whole childhood. So growing up, I was wondering what was so awesome about this thing that would come before me my whole life. So it was like curiosity in the first aspect and then... The next was uh, social acceptability. So it was a way to gain friends? Yeah, I was um, I was born with my feet handicapped, and I had to wear, like, special shoes and uh, braces, and kids are mean. They would make fun of me and laugh at me and call me names about the kid with the funky shoes, and, and uh, I really despised kids that were my age because they were the ones that I heard most of the time saying these mean things to me so that would automatically put me in a mindset where I wanted to my friends or people that I would associate were older than me and that would continue on till I got older and of course if you're hanging out with older people you're going to do what older people are doing and it's like I never fit into any crowd until I had uh, seen people that are a little bit older than me doing the things that my 
my mom was doing. And I thought, well, I can do that. And instantly I felt like I fit in somewhere. I mean, I don't think that anybody as a child says, you know, I want to grow up to be an addict. I mean, I don't think that's how it works. I, I really believe that there is the, the biological disposition and then something along the way will trigger that. Like with me, I was probably 12 years old and I just did it because everybody else was doing it. It was the cool thing to do. And then, you know, at some point there was no stopping. It just just got out of control and it goes on and on. We hear a lot about gateway drugs. Do you believe that there is a such thing as a gateway drug? What was the first drug you tried? Well, for me, it was alcohol first, and then it then I eventually tried marijuana. I don't think that it was a gateway drug. I think it was me searching for what worked best for what I was using it for, and that was it was an easy way to escape feelings. And then you just you'll try one thing, and if that doesn't do what you want, you'll try something else until you get to where you're you want to be for me gateway i mean there was no such thing as a gateway drug because whatever you were doing is what i was going to do and it is what i did I, you know at age 12 i was hanging around with people that were you know in their late 20s early 30s and they were shooting up they asked me if i wanted to do it and i done it i, I didn't know any better but there's a prime example of right there, you know, I was a child, I wanted to fit in, I wanted to be a part of, they were doing it, I'd done it. I used the same needle they used. Looking back at it, it was a very bad decision. Further on into my uh, drug using career, I did not shoot up because I was educated enough to know that it was not good. <laughs> and the risk for reward wasn't worth it for me because I was out of control smoking. You know, I was out of control drinking. You know, as she said, I consider alcohol like king dope because it's everywhere and it's socially acceptable. It's on TV. You can't avoid it. It's everywhere. It kills so many people. And I know for me, I had some significant clean time once. And when I say clean time, I mean no drinking, no smoking pot, no nothing. And I got it in my mind that I could drink alcohol. I could control using alcohol. That doesn't work with me. Like, I can't control, use nothing. And I know that today, and that's why I'm getting ready to come up on five years clean. We all have different ways as kids and young people that we try to cope with our feelings. Some of us do it through different activities. Others of us do it by isolating ourselves, participating in activities in order to fit in, trying to ignore feelings, shut them down. Some people have anger issues. What role do you think the home environment plays in addiction? Because it seems like it can hit any kind of family. Absolutely. I see everyday people that have came from perfectly normal, healthy families. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't discriminate. We sit in meetings sometimes with judges, attorneys, and homeless people on the other side. It doesn't matter. I've seen doctors, nurses, judges, lawyers in these anonymous 12-step programs. It's the only place that they and I have found a way to stay clean. And it's important of the anonymity because uh, society looks down at us, which, you know, you can 
look at somebody that's an alcoholic and be like, oh, they drink a lot. When you look at somebody and you're like, well, that's a meth addict. You know, that's an automatic bad. And uh, I, I dislike that stereotype because we do recover. What's the difference between the person who chooses to cope with their feelings through drugs and the person who chooses another activity that's not self-harm? I think that a lot of things start out as one thing and end up as a whole nother thing. In my household, partying was what I seen. I had, you know, witnessed in the opposite room of me sexual abuse. That was a bad environment that I lived in. Eventually, I would end up getting sexually abused. That's not necessarily while I used, but I did discover it helped me not think about it. It wasn't even something that I was considering. It was something that I was trying to forget. I mean, that that's all it was, is, is I did not want to remember it. I didn't want to think about it. And I realized that this thing that was gaining me social acceptability, it also helped me mask feelings, also helped me uh, not worry about whether people were judging me or not. And then eventually, uh, with the chronic pain that I had in my feet, it would help me uh, deal with the pain. And, and see, it all started as something else. Uh, and, and I see that a lot in recovery is people get hurt they start out on a low dose of, of a painkiller, and before you know it, that you know they need a little bit more to get what they were getting, you know, the effect of it, and before you know it, it's snowballed out of control, and then if for whatever reason they can't get it from a doctor, then you are left to turn to the streets with an addiction. I think as far as using drugs as a coping mechanism, a lot of it is just by chance. I was 12 years old and introduced to alcohol and marijuana, and I was a good kid. I had a loving family. I had seen a lot of alcohol use in my day, but like just being introduced to it through my peers, and then something clicked in my brain, and I, I knew that that was the easy way to deal with anything, good feelings, bad feelings, that that was my go-to for any feelings. So you would both say that the process towards becoming an addict began in adolescence? Absolutely. Very much so. Like I, I like to, when I'm speaking, I share this. When I was a, a kid and my mom would like buy me a, a G.I. Joe, uh, it would come with a paper that, that you would unfold and it had like a bunch of the other G.I. Joes. And it's like I was more interested in looking at that than actually playing with the toy because I just wanted more. You know, I wanted, I wasn't happy with the one toy. I wanted the rest of them. And, and that is kind of how addiction went for me. Once I started using, I could have, I could have more dope in my pocket, but all I can think about is what am I going to do when that's gone? See that, that tells me that, you know, I had a, I had a problem way before the dope. The yeah. scary part is I see it in my children today. I mean, I have a six- and seven-year-old son, boys, and they will start playing their video games, and it's like if you take that video game away from them or make them stop playing, it's like it, it just eats their soul. And that's kind of like what addiction is with us. They feel like they need that. That's what they need more than anything is to play these video games or my kids, my daughters, my teenage daughters to talk on the phone or my one daughter's boyfriend, like, she feels like she needs him all the time. It's it's all the same thing. It's 
feeling like you need something to function. And I think adolescence is like that for most people. One extreme to the next, I guess with all your hormonal fluctuations and trying to figure out who you are independent of your parents and what your identity is going to be in this world. It's a pretty rough time. And I know for me, it's probably been the roughest time of my life was being a teenager. People talk all the time, oh, I wish I could go back to high school. And I say, no, no, <laughs> no way. <Me> you <laughs> could not, not. <laughs> you could not pay me to go back to high school. I hear people all the time saying they brought this on themselves or talk about addicted people as if they're weak-minded somehow. I guess it's the same stigma that comes with mental illness. If you're mentally ill or if you're depressed or if you have anxiety, you're weak-minded. Anything that has to do with willpower or mental stability is seen as a weakness, and I think that's especially true in our culture. But from talking to you, both of you, and from knowing people who are addicted, that's not the case at all. It's not a matter of weak-mindedness, and it's not a matter of choice. How would you speak to people who feel like it's a choice? I would ask them, you know, do they feel like people with, say, diabetes? Did they make the choice to have the diabetes because they kept eating the the little Debbie cakes and the, drinking the soda pop and I mean, it's just like, it's like I said earlier, nobody wakes up saying, I want to be an addict when I grow up. You know, I want to be a junkie. Just like nobody wakes up saying, I want diabetes or I want cancer. It's a disease. It's progressive. It's fatal. And just like with any other disease, I mean, they didn't choose it. They are responsible for their recovery, just like with cancer or diabetes. Once you realize it's there, you have the responsibility to to make sure you do the treatment for it. And the same it goes with addiction. Yeah, and what a lot of people don't realize is, is even with cancer or diabetes, you can choose to treat it or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can choose to put Band-Aids on it um, and continue with old habits mm -hmm. um, in the meantime. To me, it's so obvious that it's just like any other medical illness or mental illness that a person can face. And there's so much stigma behind it that I believe that it makes people hide it rather than seek the help that they need. Let's just talk a minute about what brought you to the point of wanting to recover. In 2011, our house was raided by a drug task force in northeast Indiana. And my four children were taken away and put into the state foster care system. And a judge told me that I could change my life or hence become responsible for my treatment or go to prison and never see my kids again. So that's what made me make my choice. And for me, I was there that same day, but my criminal experience was a little more involved. And I talked about this just the other day, you know, I didn't choose in my life to be a criminal, but addiction had got a hold of me and because of that I began to make criminal decisions which would lead to me getting into trouble. Uh, it would start out with a little petty crime like shoplifting or staying up after curfew and being outside or minor possession of a weapon and, and, and it would just progress and progress until 
it got to the felony level. I used the system my whole life because of uh, my fear of going to jail. I would um, I would run to treatment and uh, and get help, but I really didn't want any help. You know, I was just trying to get the judge off my back. When they took the kids, I seen for the, like the first time because with my childhood, I was unable to love really so I could just pretend like nothing of that nature existed in my life well this day when they took my kids see I had raised my children to think that the police are wrong and that the um, child social services is wrong and all that and then the day that they took them from me I seen the fear in their eyes and it hit me that not only are they taking your kids but you raised them to believe that those are the bad people and it's you you know it was me that was the bad person and I realized today that I'm not a bad person I'm a sick person and today I'm getting better like Sheena had mentioned it's something I have to work on daily and a lot of it is daily acceptance of myself you know, because there's something inside me that still today sometimes says, John, I don't like you. If I don't work on that, if I don't address that, I'm going to look for ways and means to avoid it. You know, that's where I'm at today. They call it an epidemic in this area. And I, from what I understand, it's somewhat the same nationwide of grandparents having to be the ones to raise their kids because of so many similar situations does addiction make you stop being a parent? Do you feel like you're less of a parent as an addict? Or how how does addiction affect parenting? You know, when I was using, I would have told you that I was a good mom. Um, and I would have absolutely believed that 100% when I said it. But looking back now, I can see a lot of things that I should have been doing that I wasn't doing. And a lot of things that I was doing that I shouldn't have been doing. I thought that I was a good parent because my kids were always with me. At the age of 10, my daughter had never been to a babysitter. She had been with me her entire life. I was a stay-at-home mom, but the whole time that she was with me, I was high. I wasn't a good mom, but I couldn't see it then. It's something that you look back and see after the fact. Yeah, I agree that denial is a huge part of addiction. For me, I'd mentioned I was unable to love. But one of my addictions was work. I went to work. I held a job because I was, uh, well, for a few different reasons. One was I, I liked money. Two was it was really hectic at my house with four kids. And if I was at work, it was not. I couldn't even realize that that's really what was going on. I thought because I brought money home that i done what a dad was supposed to do. And, uh... I didn't know what a dad was supposed to do. I never had one around. So I know today that, you know, bringing money into the household is not how you you uh, love a family. A lot of people mention that the parents who have to turn their kids over or have their kids taken or have to ask their parents to raise their children have a lack of either one responsibility or have a lack of caring or love for those children. Do you think that's the case? Does addiction make you love less? 
I think that when you're using, when you're actively using, it's really hard to have any real feelings. Most of your feelings at that point are chemically induced. Now, don't get me wrong, I love my kids. I've always loved my kids. That was my breaking point. That's what made me decide, you know, that it was time to, to grow up and be a parent and to get clean. But at the same time, like I said, when you think that you're showing your children all the love that you can and you're doing what you need to do as a parent, you're high. And once when you're high, you, you really can't make good decisions. You're not thinking right at the time. It's not that they, they love their children any less. It's that they, they don't love their self enough. They don't love their self enough to, to take care of their self, which would make it easier to take care of the kids. I can speak for myself on this because in my experience of working with countless addicts, we, we all are different in some ways and similar in a lot of other ways. For me, it was the circumstances that made me not able to love. I learned at an early age that love hurt. Naturally, I loved my mom. Um, mama's boy, um, that's who raised me and until um, she gave me up for alcohol. But when she would fall down drunk and bloody herself up, and I would be, you know, um, seven, eight, ten years old, and I would want to run to her and be like, to help her or, you know, to coddle her or, like, put a rag on her cut, and I would get cussed at and, and told that I'm just like my father or, or that I remind her of dad. or and, and, and it would make me mad because I'm like, I remind you of who, you know, or what? What is, what is the, is he bad? So I shut it out because of that. And I did not love me because of things like that. And did addiction uh, make it worse? Well, I think that when your feelings come by the milligram in a pill form or in a bag or in a bottle, you don't even know how to feel. When I first got clean, I didn't know how to feel. I went through a whole range of emotions that were all new to me. I started using at 12 years old. I got clean at 35, so I was a 35-year-old man, 35-year-old body with a 12-year-old mentality. You know, I didn't know how to handle life. Fortunately, the caseworker that we had seen something in us that we did not see in ourselves at the time and that she would not accept our denial answers as far as like uh, we weren't going to own our side of the street and she was not accepting that and she would say, you guys are going to have to own this. It was that type of thing that made her believe that not only could we get better, we could break the cycle that I was raised in. It was important at this point that not only did I get clean, but I raised my children in a manner that maybe they won't live the life that I lived. I truly love that lady for that, man. She believed in me. She told me from the beginning it was not a good idea for our children to go into family's care. Well, in fact, they put them with my mom for a little while, and they got taken from her like I did because she chose drinking. There was the option for the kids to come to Kentucky to be with her family, but it's so common that when the kids get with the grandparents, and this is this is what I see now, is the kids get with the grandparents, well, that's where the parents go when they get out of prison or, or whatever. That's their go-to place, so they're with their kids anyhow. The only thing they're missing out on is 
the money that they may get to care for these kids. And it, I mean, that's, that's a sad way of looking at it, but that is truly what I see. In your knowledge, are most of the caseworkers like the caseworker you have, or did you get lucky? We were very lucky, very lucky. Our caseworker, I, I truly feel, is one in a million. It's not something that you come across very often. The social work field is very easy to burn out. They see a lot of things that most people couldn't deal with, and it's very easy for them to get bitter and to take that out on everyone. We were lucky with our caseworker. She, she was pretty new at her job, and like John said, she's seen something in us, and she, she didn't let us give up. And yeah, we were very fortunate in that matter. And honestly, for the first time in my life, that feeling that I got when I was, uh, when I first started getting high, I started to get from her, because she was like telling me how she believed in me and how, you know, I'd never been told that. I'd never been told that, you know, somebody seen something good in me. And it was like, I mean, I'm tearing up right now even thinking about it because it, it meant so much to me that it fueled the fire that I don't ever want to go back to that life again because I know that little spark that she put in me, I have in me, and I believe in myself now. She doesn't work in that field no more. And, and I've heard her share it with me. I mean, she just asked me to come there and speak for her in her new line of work. And it is, it's because it, it's so rare that people want to own their mistakes. I don't think it's necessarily what it used to be in this drug world. You know, it's not, you know, a little bit of weed and a little bit of acid. It's all that and some. You know, you got all these synthetic drugs that are getting a hold of people that they're convinced that they're not doing drugs. And you've got suboxone, you know, that's literally the Oxycontin of Letcher County. I mean, it, this place is destroyed with it. There's people shooting it up. Their hands are swelling up like they're going to bust. This is what they're giving them to get them off of dope. It's not good. Hearing that story is one of the reasons that I wanted to do this show because I know a number of addicts and I'm sure most of our listeners know a number of addicts. All of our families are touched by addiction in Absolutely. one form or fashion and I think we're kidding ourselves if we say that it's not. But the vast majority of addicts that I know really well are beautiful people. With Absolutely. really good hearts. The smart I swear that like the smartest people that I that I know that have the the drive that they will not settle for anything less than what they want have been to the bottom and they're on their way up and know how to handle defeat. A lot of people don't have that. You know what I mean? The feeling of, of uh empathy is so important. You know, I'm just, I'm speaking on, on behalf of me working with addicts f from me being an addict. But I have sat across the table from countless counselors that there's something that they don't have that my wife has. And that's empathy for an addict. You know, we've walked in their shoes. We know how they feel. We know that probably the most important thing for them is someone to believe in them. 
to let them know that there there is hope. They're not bad people. They made poor decisions. I still go to counseling, but do I get out of it what I get in a 12-step anonymous program? No, I don't because there's no empathy there. They look at me like they just never know what's going to come out of me. And when I'm in a meeting, these people know what's coming out of me, and they know how to say me too, and that's important. That's the thing. I mean, we can't be surprised at what a human being, any human being, addict or not, is capable of doing, given certain circumstances. Even the best of people may surprise themselves, or people who think that (laughs) they're the best of people. Myself, I'm on this kick, is that there's no black or white. There's no perfectly good, no perfectly bad. Everything falls in kind of this gray area because there's so much that feeds into our choices and how we get to where we are. I'm sitting across from the both of you, both very articulate, obviously smart, beautiful people. You tell me that you've committed felonies. What I see is a heart for your children, a heart for your community, a heart for other people who are struggling, but that same person, right, under different circumstances, chose to commit a crime. And it's not good or bad one way or the other. It was circumstances. Is that correct? Is that a correct assumption? That is correct. I know not to make any criminal decisions now, nor do I want to, but I just, I can. I will go to prison, and prison is not the place for an addict wanting to get better. There's more drugs in the prison system than there is out here. You just have to do some very bad things for them. Now, I have a lot of friends, and and I say friends loosely, like acquaintances that I went to school with, uh, people that I grew up with in my town that are uh, in prison doing long-term sentences because of a poor choice on drugs, maybe even just possession of the drug. In my opinion, treatment would have been the way better option. For me, treatment didn't work the first time. It didn't work 20 years later, but four years later it worked because I was ready. That's what it took. I needed to be ready, and in recovery we call it rock bottom. We all got a different bottom. I know people that have hit a bottom that they still have their vehicles, they still have their family, they're still accepted in all of their family, they still work. They just, for whatever reason, hit a bottom, they get help, they continue to work a program, and they're better. Some people lose it all, and there's no telling the difference between that. I know for me, I showed up to treatment on a moped with a pillow and the clothes on my back. It was pretty clear to me that I needed to do something different in life. So you're married. Were you addicted before you got married? We've actually just celebrated 16 years together. We have been married for eight. The first 10 years of that we used together. This is is another thing that just really touches me about the both of you is that you're clean together. I see so many couples where one wants to get clean but the other one doesn't. Or they both try to get clean, one's successful, the other's not. They both decide not to together, or the relationship ends up just tearing apart. How have you supported one another 
through this process? And, and does recovery look different for each of you, or is it the same? Of course, it wasn't my first go around with recovery, but I was told uh, the halfway house that I went to, halfway house, I mean, um, it was just an old country house that um, United Way put forth some funding and some other people in a committee put forth funding. And there was like 13 people in this house and there was a house manager that loved and believed in everybody in that house. His uh, wife was in recovery as well and he told me from the get-go that I needed to do my program and she needed to do hers and for me to never put my nose in it. And that is what has helped us the biggest part of it. Her recovery, I'll just be honest with you, would get me high. And I think the same. would If she was trying to do what I do, she would probably kill people because she just don't... <laughs> she don't much like talking to people. And I, and I need to go out and mingle and look at... I need to see the still-suffering addict. It's important to me to see it in a, in a way that she's not seeing it. She's got schooling degrees and she goes and helps in a whole different way than I do. You know, I'm in the front lines. I truly believe that's where I belong. I don't think that the hell that I lived through was for no reason. I'm not educated. I believe that maybe one day I could get a, a GED in, in a degree, but, you know, right now I'm not there and I think I'm doing what God has meant for me to do. I think we were fortunate about six years into our marriage, John went to rehab and I did not. And he got clean for a while and I did not. And we seen that, how quickly that fell apart. And we knew that if we didn't both get clean, that it was never going to work. I see couples a lot that come into recovery and their significant other is still using. And I try to tell them, you know, this is never going to work if they don't get clean. And I believe that because I've seen it happen with John and, and I, and it, it lasted maybe six, seven months, and then it was just over. It was done. And it was and, it's um, horrific. It was when worse we, than before. When we take off, I was clean. I was doing good. I was trying to do things, healthier decisions. I was, you know, paying things, being a responsible, productive member of society to one poor decision and I had to do something more than what I ever had to do before is is I had to use that shame and guilt a way of I knew there was a better way to live and I knew that I could do it and and it was tough because it took twice three times four times the amount of drugs to get me where I was at when I stopped within two weeks and that's awful. But we decided this time when they took our kids, we knew that if we didn't both get clean that it was never going to work and it wasn't going to last. We knew that we couldn't stay together to do that because we had to work on ourselves. So I went to a treatment center about an hour away from John, where John was at in, in rehab. And for that was that lasted for a year before we reunited our family we spent a year working on ourselves fixing what we need to do without each other and then we came together and did a lot of counseling as a couple 
also and with our kids. So the whole family's received help in regards to yes. everything that's happened. Yeah, and 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 I was shell shocked when it ended when the the help ended and it was like boom, here you go. And it was actually pretty good help that we were given, but it showed me the fact that how bad off we really were. We would get visitation with our children, supervised visitation, two hours a week. That was the only time I could see her. For a year, I could not spend a night with her. I realized how codependent I was. That mommy that I wanted when I was a kid, I was wanting her to be. I was not gonna get better until I learned that it, it was, I needed to be an adult. You know, I needed to make my own decisions. I think that every bit of the help that we got was was very important. You know, there was the supervised visitations, the foster parents after the visitations were over, bringing the kids over to us and letting them stay with us for four hours and then taking them back. They reunited the children with her after six months, and I still couldn't see them. I had individual counseling, random drug tests. I had to attend meetings regularly. You know, I was forced to do this stuff. And even though I wanted to, that extra push was much appreciated because it was a push when I didn't want to do it. But when I wanted to do it, it was a pat on the back because I was already doing it. Then the, the marriage counseling. At the end of our deal, when we were reunited, we moved here. The day that we were reunited, we moved to Whitesburg began what we're living right now and I, and I wouldn't change it for the world. You're both working with addicts in one way or another and through recovery programs. Your children were all old enough to I guess have some sense of what was happening through the whole process and I'm sure they are aware now. How are they? What what do they feel about where you are now they're very on top of where we are now at least with our teenage girls they can look at us and tell very quickly if something's wrong and if we need to be doing something to address it and they will tell us <laughs> very quickly especially with their dad they'll if they see him upset or something they'll, they will tell him you need to go to a meeting and um and they know they um every time that we do any kind of recovery function they they want to go they want to be a part of it they've read a lot of the literature our one daughter can recite a lot of the literature from memory our boys luckily were 1 and 2 when we went into treatment so they don't remember any of it i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad i think with my girls they seen hell through their very young years and they remember Absolutely. it all and I think that I hope that that will steer them away from turning in the direction that we did um, and with my boys I just hope that seeing seeing us continue to work with people who are dealing with addiction being very honest with them about addiction and trying to teach them from a very young age the experiences that we've had with it that maybe that will steer them from it. I don't think that we'll be lucky enough for none of them to have to. Statistically. 
statistically, I mean, we you, have four you, kids. One of them is going to end up dealing with addiction, and that's just something we're going to have to face. Statistics aren't something that I really like because statistically I should probably be dead. I was a meth cook, <laughs> and there's not very high odds that we get clean and don't return to that activity. But, uh, you know, I say that today because I own it. I know that I was taught how to manufacture when I was very young. It destroyed my life. I knew that I could always fall back on that and when I wanted power because it was what everybody wanted. And, and it just it really ruined me. There's no guarantee on anybody's kids. I have a relationship with my kids and continue to, to pray that I have this relationship that we can talk about anything. I get told when they go into school and there's people doing pills and snorting Smarties off the counter and smoking and not a whole lot's changed from when I was in school as far as people were using in there. You know, what I've tried to talk to them about is there's times where you're going to have to make a decision where your best friend is going to do something that you're going to have to think, do I need to walk away from my best friend? How am I going to handle this? There's no guarantee. Education, I think it's so important. I think the education that we need is a little bit different than, say, the D.A.R.E. approach. But look at, look at society right now. You know, you said it. Look how many grandparents are uh, raising children. Look at the number of children in Letcher County that are born addicted. We're in a bad situation. In my opinion, there needs to be more resources. There needs to not be more prisons. There needs to be more resources. They just started a new facility, uh, Kentucky River Care, Hickory Hill, on the Knott County, Perry County line. It's a men's facility. It houses like 100 men. There's a, a women's facility in Cumberland. There's more options for women and children because funding's there. It's easier to get funding for women and children than it is men. Where I went in Indiana, the halfway house, if we would pop up more of those here, which is probably going to be frowned on just like the needle exchange, you would have more success rate of the recovering addicts. Because what happened is, is we moved in there, we used each other to help support one another. We done things for the community, you know, we would uh, do a day of caring. We'd go around and build ramps for handicap at their homes or go and clean gutters or mow yards and things like that to show people that, yeah, we were bad people or yeah, we made poor decisions, got ourselves into trouble, but we want to do something different. And when we do that together, you know, eventually these people can get jobs and move on with their life. What happens when you take an addict, you put him in prison, and he gets out, and he has no resources? He has no ways and means to do anything, or not even to meet his requirements that's asked of him through probation and parole. You know, I see that a lot. You know, these people can't even get to their appointments and go back to jail because of that. I know that this is frowned on. I watched the opening of the homeless shelter that was to be opened in this town and got pushed to neon and not only did it get pushed to neon it got pushed into the country of neon 
I mean, how is homeless people supposed to get here? There's no resources in Neon. And they can't even get to the food stamp office unless somebody drives them. There's something here that needs to be looked at. And it can be helped because I was viewed as a hopeless drug addict. Viewed like that for a long time. If there's hope for me, man, anybody can do it. I truly believe it. That's one thing I think our community needs to work on. You've repeated it several times, is to own it. This isn't just one person's problem. This is our problem together. We're in this together as a community. What affects one of us affects all of us, and we see it just spreading throughout our community and changing our health and our family structure and devastating us in a lot of ways. If we're going to have hope and if we're going to be able to change the way this looks, we have to own that it's a problem, but it's not one that we can't work through. Absolutely, it can be worked through. From where I stand, I go to these meetings in this town. I see high-quality recovery in this town that no one really knows about unless you see your uncle miraculously driving a car that he never had before, you know? I mean, and then you got the other angle of it. There's a building that's a nice building right by the police station, right by a church that would have been great to turn into a recovery facility, but yet it's turned into an ASAP suboxone clinic. It could be seen, you know, if they want to see what's going on, they could see it. They could watch them. If you want to help the problem, help it. Don't feed it. I know, speaking as a recovering drug addict, don't give me more dope to get better. Give me the solution. Let's talk about what that is in the time we've got left. You both were in Indiana when you started this process, and now you're here. A lot of the people who I know who have also recovered have also left. Mm. Um, they've moved away from here. So do you believe that that's necessary in order to be successful with recovery? Do you need to leave the town you were addicted in? We go back to our hometown often, and the using it is not an option, even when we're there. We moved from Indiana to here, but the problem came with us, because the problem is us. The problem is not the drugs. It's the way we deal with life. It was coping mechanisms. It was a disease in the brain that we have to keep control of, and that came with us. I don't feel that an environmental change is necessary. Sometimes it may make it easier in the beginning to just not be around the people, places, and things that would have triggered your use before. So, I mean, it may make it easier on you, but I don't think it's necessary. I can explain that the geographical change was necessary for me because I needed somewhere to go where somebody would help me get back on my feet. I was a year clean in this facility and I had a job, but what I'd done in that town was created a bad name for myself and nobody would rent to me. There was no way I could get going in that town or, or anywhere around there. So we moved here because family took us in, helped us get on our feet, which that could be replaced by resources. If you have something, because I know for me at the end, there was no question. I did not want to get high. But had I get, had to go move into somebody using dope to pretend like I was going to get back on my feet, 
I would have got high again. I asked to be put on probation here in this town when I moved here because that was part of our plea agreement was to move here. And I asked to be transferred on probation to here because I knew that the watchful eye is helpful for me. I moved into this town. The very first thing that I done was I wanted to know where meetings were. So I went to probation and parole and I went to the drug court office and I was asking a lot of questions about where could I go and share my story because I've always been told that I can only keep what I have by giving it away as far as my recovery. I asked, you know, where the meetings are and where's more meetings and where's more resources. And I didn't get a whole lot of input on this. I got a few meetings in the town that they told me about. They kind of looked at me a little foreign because I was all wanting a gung-ho for this. When I'd come back for my next probation appointment and I said, what is going on around here? There's a major problem here. You guys need some help for these people. And I was told, and I won't say her name, that it's culture here. And that's disgusting (laughs) to even hear that. I mean, it's not. It's culture because you allow it to be. I mean, do something about it. No, it has nothing to do with our culture. (laughs) Nothing at all. We do have... That could be a whole other show. <laughs> no, that, that is, that's hard to hear. If there are family members of someone who is addicted who want to help them, can they, should they intervene? And if so, how? If you have a family member who's dealing with active addiction who says that they are ready to get treatment, I truly believe that you should act on that as quickly as possible because it's very easy to convince yourself of otherwise mm-hmm. very quickly when, when you're actively using. There are resources available. They are very limited. It's not an easy process. Unite in Letcher and Perry County offer vouchers for treatment centers that anyone can apply for, which would pay for their treatment. Also, the Kentucky Recovery Centers have 11 facilities throughout the state split down the middle, male and female, and they all take self-referrals and their programs are free. You would be put on a waiting list and it would take a while to do that. And there's always self-help 12-step meetings in pretty much every town of this eastern Kentucky. If you are an addict yourself and you want to help yourself, is it the same process, the same steps? When I decided to get clean, I had to do one thing, and it was I had to change everything. People, places, and things. I had to go after my recovery like I ran after dope. It's that important. You know, it is my number one priority. Again, I'm a father of four kids and a husband to a wife, and I know today it is very important that I go to meetings. It has to be done. Today, it it needs to be done for more than just me. But by helping others, I help myself. And as far as like the family member that is uh, using drugs and you thinking that they need help, proceed with caution. In my experience, you don't want to enable them. But it is important to let them know that you love them regardless of whatever's going on. 
that you're not giving up on them, that you may need to love them from a distance until they're ready to help themselves. These uh, treatment centers that she's talking about, the waiting list, it is a list, and, and it will require you to call every day. But in my experience, the addict that needs that treatment was willing to call someone every day. They just need to replace that want, and uh, it is possible. As far as the addict wanting help and what does he do, like I did, go to a probation parole. Go somewhere where you know people that are living a life where they may have to, you know, got into some criminal activity and they have a addiction problem. Find out what they're doing to get help. They'll be glad to tell you because there just isn't a whole lot of people that want help. There are meetings. There's meetings in this town. I'm not going to say I can't. It's an anonymous program. I can't even say what they are. But I can tell you they're Tuesdays, Thursdays, Friday mornings, and Saturday, and they are amazing meetings and they're open to the public if, if you want to come and look and see what it's about you're more than welcome to and people can ask others who are working through recovery and and they'd be able to share with them individually i actually think if you went to the library and asked them that they would point you in the right direction library keeps schedules on hand the local drug court office local probation and parole office courthouse you can find the schedules if you want to. In the next few days, there will be a list of numbers. That's one number. You pull it off, and it's got a, a helpline number on it that we will we'll bring a stack of them up here. Um, right. We're, we're going to tape them on all the shops. Up to, I've been ta- taping them in the hospital. They tear them down since you put them up. It's something that these fellowships are being frowned on that are going to help people. My view on that is because people don't know what's going on in there. Go check it out. If you're curious, go check it out. Well, it seems to me like it would take a variety of approaches because everybody's unique. Yeah. It's not going to work for everyone the same thing, the same way. And and, and I agree with that. And there are other options in this town than those at this place. There are recovery programs in several churches around here that are available Whatever will help you get clean, please do it. I mean, because I live a life today, it's just a, a life that I never imagined I could have. I, I don't need to reach for something to be happy. I can look at the leaves blowing that I never noticed before and be happy. I cry today. You know, I never cried my whole life. And I cry when my kids do something amazing. It's not because I'm hurt or because I'm sad. It's because I'm so happy, man, that, that I, I cry. This life is worth living. And to know that it's okay to feel and our emotions aren't things that need to be turned off or numbed away. Yeah, and, and you know, for me, one of the things that I learned when I talked to, about the, the train of feelings that I got is, is it was important for me to know that feelings aren't permanent. You know, sometimes they hurt real bad. Sometimes they're, you know, amazing. You don't ever want them to end. None of them last forever. You know, enjoy the good ones when they're there. You know, look at the bad ones. Just feel and process them. And, and uh, you know, in my experience, this is important. It's real important because I didn't know how to feel. It's important that I know that whatever I'm feeling, I don't have to feel forever, no matter how bad it is. And a lot of times I remind myself, if it wasn't for bad days, I wouldn't know I'd have a good day. 
I want people, families who have an addict who is suffering to know that there's always hope. I truly believe that as long as they're still breathing, there's hope. I see a lot of families that they've tried one thing or another thing and those didn't work, but just, just don't give up. Well, I appreciate both of you coming in a great deal today and sharing your story and sharing what you know about how to begin the process of recovery and what it might look like for folks out there. Just super grateful from the bottom of my heart. I think more stories like yours need to be heard on all sorts of different topics. Mm. So I appreciate that a great deal. I appreciate being asked, really. It's, it's an honor. That brings us to the end of this Mountain Talk Monday. I want to thank John and Sheena again for their fearless telling of their experience so that we all can learn and benefit from their knowledge. You will be able to stream this episode from the WMMT website and it is downloadable as a podcast. Thank you for listening to Real Stories, Real News, Real People Radio. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood, and it's a wrap for this edition of Mountain Talk Monday.